Well, welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Dave Snoke, and uh, I am um, an inactive elder, as they say. Um, you will find out what that means if you ask, if you don't know already. Uh, but uh, basically means I have not been defrocked. I'm just not actively on session uh, at the moment, but I still um, preach occasionally. And so, uh, as those of you who've been coming for a while know, we've been uh, going through Psalms really since last fall. And uh, so we are um, continuing on that. We'll probably continue on that through uh, at least uh, another month or two uh, before we pick up a new sermon series. And so as uh, John uh, and I and uh, a couple other guys were sitting around uh, thinking about, you know, what's, what Psalms are left. There's 150 Psalms. We're not going to do all of them. And we've tended to pick them based on themes of like what are the great themes in the Psalms. And we realized we hadn't really landed on the theme of justice in the, the Psalms. It's a theme throughout all scripture, uh, but in particular in the Psalms, uh, there is a constant refrain of God being the God of justice. And so uh, how could we go through the Psalms this far and not really land on that theme? Uh, there's so many other themes, and as we've talked about uh, over the many months, uh, there's a lot of emotion in all of these themes, right? There's laments, uh, there's anger, there's sadness, uh, there's confession of sin, and so on. Uh, but the psalm that we're going to read tonight uh, is really uh, one in which there is a crying out for justice. Um, so I'm going to read this, uh, and as our um, uh, tradition is, uh, on the, um, uh, at the end of the psalm, I will say this is the word of the Lord, and a response is, thanks be to God. So hear God's word from Psalm 94. <clears throat> o Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, <clears throat> and all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when you will be wise. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nation, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. <clears throat> he will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against the evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. This is the word of the Lord. So we are uh, uh, in a world, uh, at least in the U.S., this part of the world, that's really focused on justice, right? You hear justice in the news uh, all the time, social justice, racial justice for the poor, for the immigrant, uh, the Me Too movement, for the person who is different from everybody else. 
we have a society probably more than any time in my memory is really focused on justice <coughs> and on thinking about uh, issues of justice. And yet the strange thing is at the same time in our society, I would say the official teaching is that there's no such thing as justice, that actually we're all just atoms and molecules bouncing around, uh, that there's no absolute right and wrong and there's no real meaning to anything that we do. We're all just gonna become stardust eventually. Uh, and so how do we put these two things together? Uh, well, some people would say it's not about right and wrong, it's about power. It's about uh, the uh, powerful make the rules, and so the seek, seeking for justice is about inverting that and giving other people a chance at having power, uh, giving the outside uh, people the uh, inside and giving them the chance at power. And yet, why should we do that? Who says that that's a good thing to do? If we're all just atoms and molecules, why should we care which uh, clusters of atoms are the ones with power? So I'd actually argue that in our society, this sort of big inconsistency that we have is because we actually have a historical uh, framework that really rests on the Judeo-Christian tradition. There is a huge concern uh, for justice for the poor and the weak in the scriptures. Uh, and so if you go back in history and you look at cultures that were completely outside of that tradition, uh, you find that, by and large, they had no concern for the losers. Uh, and I remember uh, reading just in the past couple of weeks an article by a fellow who was an atheist, but he was talking about going back and studying the Greeks and the Romans and sort of saying, well, this is the root of all of our Western values, so I should really study the Greeks and the Romans. And what he found was uh, that they were incredibly unconcerned for the poor and the weak. Uh, they, you know, actually, uh, sometimes there are stories of the, of the uh, sons of the nobles going out in the middle of the night and killing the poor people in the, uh, in the homeless camps because it was a good way to sort of cleanse the city. Uh, and that was the kind of thing that was going on. And he looked at society after society that was doing similar things and realized, no, you know, Christianity really changed things. It really changed the entire ethic for the next 2,000 years. <clears throat> and really, that emanates from the Bible itself. And so I put a bunch of additional scriptures uh, in there, but if you, I'm not going to read them, but if you look at some of these Proverbs, I have Proverbs uh, 17 uh, and 24 and, uh, let me see, 22 and 29, 13, they all have this theme of that God has made everybody in his own image, that every single person has value, the poor as well as the rich, and that those who ignore the poor and the weak or who uh, have no concern for justice for them are really uh, slapping God in the face uh, because they are, they are treating as nothing uh, the people that God has made in his own image. And so we actually, in our, I would submit to you, if you really are concerned about justice, that we really need to look at the source of justice, which is God himself, that God reveals in scripture his premises for justice. And so this is going to be a first of two weeks. Next week I'm going to look at a different psalm. We're going to look at sort of justice between people, shalom. What is it that, uh, you know, how do just judges rule? But this week I'm going to focus really just on the justice of God himself because the Bible would say that the principle of morality, the principle of justice uh, and judgments uh, comes from God himself. Uh, and so this sense that we have where on the one hand we're saying intellectually we think there's no meaning to anything, it's just atoms and molecules, but we can't really live with that. We feel deep down, no, there actually really is this deep moral law. There is this really this moral sense. Uh, is because God actually created the universe that way, that our, we live in a moral universe. Uh, and so we have then 
uh, the principle that God's morality is the beginning and all of our justice is an echo, one could say, of that. So what I want to do, I'm going to bring out just three points about uh, God's justice, about how he operates uh, from this psalm here. And so the first one, I would say, and I categorize it if you have the sermon notes there, um, as the whole concept of retribution, of retributive justice. So let me take a step back and just talk about that concept. I would say in general, in our day, uh, a lot of people are greatly uncomfortable with the idea of of retributive justice. Um, And so, you know, looking at this kind of a psalm that we have in front of us make uh, a lot of people uncomfortable. And I've talked to actually uh, many people in the church, I don't know, you know, numbers-wise, what percentages or anything, but I've talked to some people who are very committed, uh, evangelical, biblical Christians, whatever you want to say, uh, call them, who would say, I just am not comfortable with the idea of, uh, is it retributive or retributive? I feel like I'm stumbling over that word, and it's like the main word for this section, so... Um, but retributive justice um, is something that people are very uh, uncomfortable with, even as Christians. So if you think about the types of punishments or the types of justice, I have a whole list here uh, of things that we're more comfortable with than retribution. Uh, So for instance, um, there is the idea of restorative justice or restorative punishment, which sometimes we call discipline. Uh, so it would be for the good of the perpetrator, for the, for the person who is the criminal, we're going to make them go through some kind of penalty so that they would build, it would be good for them, it would build their character. Um, actually in Pennsylvania, the uh, prisons used to be called penitentiaries because the idea of this will be something where the criminal can you know, pray and do penance. Uh, another aspect of justice is restitution. Uh, paying back the victim. So if someone steals a cow, you give the cow back, and maybe you give them something for their loss of time as well. Uh, We also have the concept of protection, uh, removing the criminal from threatening others. So a lot of times when people talk in a public sphere about uh, the justice system, they're talking about taking criminals and putting them behind bars so that we're all safer. Uh, Again, that's uh, one aspect. Another is rescue, rescuing the weak defeating the evil person to save the innocent from them. And that's a theme that we see in scripture, that God rescues uh, people, for instance, from uh, Pharaoh in Egypt. The, Egyptian, the Israelites were rescued uh, from those who had cap- captured them. There's also the idea of deterrence, uh, the idea of creating fear so that other people don't do wrong in the future. And there's also the idea of proclamation, sending a message that something is wrong. So just saying, like, by, show, by punishing this, we're going to show, we're going to testify that this is something that we don't support. So all of these you can find in the Bible. All of these are aspects of justice. But, but the one I'm going to land on here is the one that really is landed on in this psalm. And this is the idea of retribution. Uh, and so what is retribution fundamentally? It's, it's, you could say, in one way, it's visiting the crime back on the criminal. And the way I want to kind of get you to think about this <clears throat> is God, I said, made a moral universe. The fabric of the universe is somehow violated when somebody does something really criminal. Uh, God ordered all things to be good, and in a very real way, when we sin, whether or not another person was hurt... Um, we have sort of violated the, the moral fabric of the universe itself. We have violated God's moral ordering of things. 
And so there has to be a putting right of, of things. There has to be a putting right of the universe uh, that things are restored back. And the way that scripture talks about this is the sin being visited back onto the person who did it. Uh, and so if you look at this psalm here, uh, first of all, in verse 2, it says, Rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. That's not um, restitution to a victim. Uh, that's not protecting anybody. That's purely uh, a repayment, a retribution, a bringing back onto the the, the evil, that which they deserve. That theme is then brought up again in verse 23, that he will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. There is an accounting, there's a bringing back onto uh, the criminal that which they have sort of done is being brought back onto them. And actually, the verse that really speaks to this a lot is the very first verse, uh, which may make uh, many of us very uncomfortable it's actually given us a title for God himself. It says, O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance shine forth. Now, if you know a little bit about Hebrew, you know, they didn't have exclamation points. Uh, and so the way that they emphasized something was by doubling or tripling it. So we read earlier, holy, 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 uh, or, you know, uh, great is the Lord, great is the Lord. Well, here we see God declared twice as the God of vengeance. God of vengeance, God of vengeance. Um, well, Vengeance is something that I would say many people are very uncomfortable with, and yet here is God being called the God of vengeance. How do we uh, understand that? Well, uh, vengeance is fundamentally a bringing back onto the sinner uh, that which they deserve. Uh, now, we're really uncomfortable with that among people, uh, and we actually have a command in the Old Testament that says you shall not take vengeance uh, on your neighbor, uh, and uh, God says vengeance is mine. So next week I'm going to talk a little bit more about earthly justice uh, and uh, things that people may or may not do to each other. Uh, but that idea of vengeance, on one hand, speaks to our souls. We say, and, and you, you talk to people who deeply want vengeance. And yet uh, we're in a society that says that is wrong. What we see here in front of us is a psalm that's saying there's something actually right about that desire, but put it in the hands of God. Uh, don't take vengeance yourself. But your desire for there to be vengeance is not some kind of evil desire. It's actually resonating with the moral order of the universe itself, that there needs to be a setting right. There needs to be a paying back uh, of what was done uh, that was evil. And I'll just uh, uh, finish this section with this one point. Um, at the core, um, this is not just some minor point, but this actually really rests at the core of understanding what's going on at the cross itself. Uh, of understanding the gospel itself. Uh, what was going on at the cross when Jesus died could be called expiation of our sins, the due penalty for sin being brought out and poured onto Jesus in our place. Uh, so uh, the scriptures uh, use many different phrases for this, propitiation, expiation, sacrifice, uh, but we see it really prefigured in the entire animal sacrifice uh, system of the Old Testament. The animal sacrifice system in the Old Testament was not about paying God uh, off, you know, so that well, if you give him some stuff, because if that was the case, then you could say, well, we could give him gold, or we could give him some wheat, or we could give him uh, our time, or something like that. But only blood sacrifices were allowed, that the system revolved around blood sacrifices, and that was a picture of what was going on on the cross, 
that there is a, an atonement, there is a, a bringing back of the penalty so that it is paid, so that the moral universe is set right. Uh, and uh, so it is actually not something we can say, well, um, uh, you know, this is just sort of some minor point, but actually the entire gospel rests on the fact that Jesus uh, was undergoing retributive justice uh, on, our, our, on our accounts. Uh, and so if you look, I think, in the additional scriptures, I you know, have there Hebrews 9.22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus came to be uh, that blood sacrifice. Now I'm going to move a little more quickly in my next points. Um, how, again, thinking about how to think about God's justice. The next point, in some sense, should be obvious, but it's just. God is a just judge. He's not an unjust judge. Uh, and so we see this here in verses 2 to 6, um, that um, the people are doing this wickedness. They pour out arrogant words. They um, do all these things. And so God is not punishing good people. He's punishing wicked people. Uh, now, that may sound like an obvious thing, and yet I think we have misunderstandings. And I think that fundamentally, uh, there is a picture that we have when we think about uh, retributive justice we think about someone lashing out in uncontrolled anger. Right? That's oftentimes the way we think of that. And maybe for some of us, that's a very painful personal memory that you had parents uh, or someone else in your life who lashed out in anger in an uncontrolled way. But in Scripture, God is never uncontrolled and lashing out out of just sort of an uncontrolled uh, anger, but rather he is a perfectly just judge. Uh, and so if you look uh, in the additional scriptures there again, in Revelation chapter 19, I will read this one. It says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. And he has judged the great prostitute who has corrupted the earth with her moral- immorality and avenged on her the blood of his servants. Again, this idea of vengeance or bringing back uh, on. And yet notice that the people in heaven are praising him saying his judgments are just. They're not saying, oh, we are so ashamed of you, God, for having overreacted and poured out that anger on people that they didn't deserve. Uh, I feel like sometimes that's the way evangelicals can act. Like, we just really don't like to go to these passages in Scripture because we really think God is overreacting. Uh, But that's not the way Scripture talks. Rather, there is a calling out on God, glory to you because your judgments are just. Now, we're not in a place to know what those just judgments will exactly look like. But we can rest on faith that God is just. He is not going to over-punish somebody. He will punish people exactly as they deserve. And as we see in the psalm, uh, his judgments are are, uh, aimed at people who are oppressors, people who are uh, wicked, and not people who are basically good, uh, and God is like overreacting and penalizing them far beyond what they deserve. Again, I feel like with our, our modern society, we are in this weird kind of um, <clears throat> back and forth where, on the one hand, we want to have a lot of anger at evil and injustice. On the other hand, we are not comfortable with saying to anybody, personally, you're evil, uh, by and large. And so we end up saying, well, society is evil, uh, or corporations are evil, or nations are evil, but never anybody that I know personally. Uh, and yet, society, corporations, uh, societies can be evil. Uh, but they're made up of people, right? And those people are the ones who create the policies of those societies. 
And so here we see in the scripture here an accountability that you will not be able to say, well, I was just following orders or it was just my society or it was just the way things were always done in my culture, um, that there will be a, a holding of people accountable. Um, the next point uh, is, again, in, in principle of justice, is that God is omniscient. And we see this in verses 7 to 11. The people who are doing this oppressing say, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob doesn't perceive. And then there's sort of an argument from design uh, in response. Come on, don't be stupid. If God can make the eye, do you think that he doesn't see uh, himself what's going on? If God made the ear, do you think he doesn't hear what's going on? Uh, if he made the brain and he's the one who teaches knowledge, do you think that you can hide from him? Uh, and so this is really an important principle of justice that God knows the truth, uh, that he can't be tricked or fooled. Uh, he knows our hearts and our thoughts. Uh, now, on the one hand, that is a, a, a great promise, that there, uh, God will not be tricked or fooled, that his judgments will be just, and he will judge perfectly. Uh, but on the other hand, that's a scary thought, right, to say that God knows our thoughts, uh, as we read in the call to confession, uh, that even every idle word that we say, we will be held accountable to. So I'm going to um, put this in the positive sense, and then I'll uh, talk about um, why it should, in some sense, drive us to the gospel. Um, I'm going to tell a story. There was uh, a friend of mine, some of you have heard this, me tell this story before, a friend of mine many, many years ago, uh, probably almost 30 years ago now, uh, who went through a terrible time in his life. Uh, he, um, basically, his wife uh, left him, and she didn't just leave him, but she turned his kids against him. Uh, they went through the courts, and basically, he felt very strongly that it was a completely unjust ruling. Uh, he was um, uh, just raked through the legal system in ways that I won't describe. But as I, began, as I was talking with him, he was a friend, he had this burning sense of injustice and anger uh, that just rose. Uh, and he kept going through the courts, countersuing and things like this, and he eventually lost every case. Uh, and, and finally, he was barred from seeing his children. Uh, he was accused of all kinds of things. And uh, to make a long story short, um, he actually went insane. Uh, and he was uh, institutionalized. And what I saw there was somebody who was a believer, I believe to this day that uh, he's a believer, uh, and yet he had no sense that he could hope for God's justice. Uh, he couldn't, if he had prayed this prayer, he could have been saying, you know, in this world there isn't justice, but there is a God who will bring justice. Um, think about it, if, there, if this is all there is and there is no final judgment, what could I say to that friend? You're right. There's no justice in this world. There's no hope. It's just going to continue on like this. And you got shafted. You're in the losing end. And that's the end of the story. Um, the story of God's justice is one of hope to say evil won't win. Evil won't continue forever. And even if you are shafted, God will uh, see and he will call into account uh, that which has uh, been unjust in this life. Uh, but probably some of you uh, are already anticipating where I'm going with this. Uh, wait a minute, what about me? <laughs> uh, if I'm one of the people who's an oppressor, what if I'm one of the people who has thoughts that if they were known uh, to my neighbor, uh, to my wife, to my friends, I would be uh, really scared. Uh, if everything that is said, uh, every idle word, as Jesus says, is brought out uh, and known at the final judgment, uh, where do I stand? 
And so there is an appropriate, you know, in Scripture all the time it says, those who fear God are those who he makes his covenant with, right? And there is a sense in which we should appropriately be afraid of the final judgment. And yet, that is what the gospel is all about. Um, And so my final point is that God is a refuge. Uh, And so, in the middle of this psalm, as as there is the call for God's justice, there is also a finding God as a refuge. And notice, the person uh, who is writing the psalm is not writing it in the sense of saying, I am perfect, I am good, and those people are wicked. But rather, in verse 12 says, Blesses the man whom you discipline, O Lord. That the person praying is saying, I'm a sinner too, and I actually thank you for disciplining me uh, and, uh, and changing me so that my heart will not be uh, leaving you. Uh, and so there is uh, a, a sense in which there is a resting on God. Now, if you look uh, further in this, you see God's initiative all over this, right? So it's the Lord who's doing these things. It says, the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. Uh, then it says in verse 17, if the Lord had not been my help, I would have been essentially crushed by my sins. My soul would have lived in the land of silence. Um, then in verse 19, when the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. It's God taking the initiative uh, every step along the way. In verse 22, we have that great saying that God is my rock of refuge. And so you actually see in the last part of this here a back and forth where he's almost alternating between saying, God, I trust in you even though you discipline me, but those people who reject you will not have any such refuge uh, and going back and forth that way. Uh, So the bottom line here is that if we really, uh, on the one hand, say there must be justice or life would be intolerable, on the other hand say, but what happens if I am judged? Where do I stand? And that's where the gospel comes in, that God himself takes the initiative in Christ to be the blood sacrifice uh, for our sins. Um, There's a great statement in the Westminster Confession, which is one of the documents that our church holds to, which says, as there is no sin so small that it deserves, but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great uh, that it can bring damnation on those who repent. So maybe if I translate that, um, there is no sin that you could do which will keep you out of heaven that will prevent you from being forgiven if you repent and come to God. On the other hand, you can't play God. You can't say, well, I'm going to just you know, wallow in sin and use God's forgiveness because he has to do it. Uh, because then you are a hypocrite and you're exactly in the position of these oppressors uh, here. Uh, and if you are, in fact, uh, joined to God, he will not let you be comfortable in your sin. He will, in fact, discipline you, uh, as it says here, uh, to drive you away from your sin. So let me finish with just a, another a story. It's not my own story, uh, but one that I was reading again um, on the internet just a couple weeks ago <clears throat> of a fairly well-known preacher who was uh, talking to someone after uh, the service in his uh, church, and this person was very concerned about social justice, uh, and he asked her this question. He said, can a person who is a racist or a xenophobe be saved? Can they be forgiven of their sin? Uh, and uh, this person their sort of immediate reaction, I'm not sure if they stayed here, but their immediate reaction was, of course not. Because such a person would be evil, and an evil person uh, can't be uh, saved. And it's like, wait a minute. Uh, so what, what does that mean about all of us, right? So what happens, I think, a lot of times, 
is that we implicitly make two categories of sins. Uh, we say, well, there's the kind of sins that I do and my friends do, uh, and of course those are forgivable, uh, and those, you know, uh, don't, um, uh, you, know, you know, God of course can forgive those. But there's this other category of sins, uh, and that's completely unforgivable. Uh, and it may be, depending on your political persuasion, you may put one category, you know, and say, well, those are the unforgivable ones, and the people on the other side of the political uh, uh, aisle may say, well, no, no, your sins are the unforgivable ones, and ours are the uh, very tolerable ones. Uh, but basically, uh, what we see in the gospel is that all of us uh, fall under the judgment seat of God. None of us uh, can say, I don't repent. None of us can say, well, I'm going to just continue uh, in this sin. Uh, that's what we see very much here, that uh, those who are in wickedness need to repent. And yet I would challenge us all to say, uh, apply to others the standard you apply to yourself. If you have a sin that you fall into, uh, what happens when you fall back into that sin? Does God throw you out of the kingdom? Uh, no, he calls you to repent again and again. Uh, and we do, if we're Christians. Well, give people on the other side that same uh, opportunity, right? Say, God could even be merciful for that. God could even forgive a person like that. And I feel like in our society, we are moving toward a situation in which we are saying, well, really, there is this class of sins which is unforgivable, uh, and those people are outside of the kingdom, and there's no hope for them. Uh, in the gospel, we have a very severe uh, thing being laid on us, that God is accounting for every word, everything that we say, every racist remark, and yet we also know that any of us falling under that standard would deserve to be judged unless for the gospel of Christ uh, we are saved through his blood. Let's pray.